This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Socialism, Seriously, A Brief Guide to Surviving the 21st Century by Danny Katch. Socialism, Seriously, is a warm and witty introduction to the radical traditions of protest and politics that stretch from Karl Marx through today's movements for democracy, equality, and a livable planet. In this thoroughly revised and expanded edition, Danny Katz uses humor and imagination to take an unflinching look at the rising threats posed by climate change, billionaire oligarchs, and the far right, and makes a compelling case that a socialist world is both necessary and possible. As Anand Gopal says, give this book to your grandma, your mailman, to everyone except your boss. It's the most fun and accessible introduction to socialist ideas I've ever read. Socialism Seriously by Danny Katch. Out now from Haymarket Books and available at haymarketbooks.org, where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is the second and final part of my interview with Michael Denning on the Italian communist leader and theorist Antonio Gramsci. Please do listen to the first part if you haven't already. They're both truly remarkable conversations that provide us all organizing on the left with methods rather than guarantees the questions we should be asking, rather than always true answers scripted a century ago. Sometime in the next few months, I'll be doing another set of interviews with Denning on Stuart Hall, who Denning studied with at the Center for Contemporary Cultural Studies. But first, after listening to the draft of this interview, there are two things I want to spell out in in greater detail up front. First, Gramsci's concept of the war of maneuver versus the war of position— There are ambiguities and tensions in Gramsci's work, and and these concepts are certainly open to various interpretations. But, generally speaking, the war of maneuver refers to a frontal assault on the state, specifically government power. Think of an insurrection or an event like the Russian Revolution. While the war of position refers to the protracted assembly and construction of hegemony through mass organizing on the level of politics, ideology, and social movements. Second, Denning discusses how defeats in war can cause crises for governing regimes. And and during the interview, I neglected to respond to that argument, a really smart argument, by pointing out that most recently, the defeats of the war on terror have contributed mightily to the present crisis in American politics. And once again, you do not need to read Gramsci to listen to this interview. But if you do want to read alongside us, I've posted in the show notes a link to the portions of the prison notebooks that I read to prepare for this interview, passages that Denning suggested to me from the classic international publisher's edition, Selections from the Prison Notebooks. I also posted in the show notes a link to Denning's New Left Review essay on Gramsci as an organizer. It's really good. And briefly, before we get started, this podcast is listener-supported, and the place where listeners support it is at patreon.com slash the dig. 
even as our listenership has recently grown a lot, the growth of our Patreon has sort of leveled off in recent months, and I'm very grateful for for the roughly 2,000 listeners who support us. But tens of thousands of you who are listening right now do not support us, and it would be really great if more of you did. The reason we need your contributions is because that's what allows us to put the dig out free every week with no paywall so that everyone can listen regardless of your ability to pay. What's more, we are about to invest a bunch of funds into an ongoing series of these more creative, sound-rich narrative segments, all about all sorts of things everywhere. If you listen to our 2020 series, Antibody, that's the sort of thing I'm talking about. It'll be really good, but also kind of expensive. Okay, that said, we do have things to send you. Thank you, Gifts, for your support. If you contribute $10 or more a month, we will send you a book or books in the mail or a dig tote bag or mug. Please do contribute now if you can afford to do so and haven't done so already. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Oh, and a contribution of any amount at all gets you the digs excellent weekly newsletter sent to your email inbox. You can find all of our newsletters posted free at thedigradio.com alongside our vast archives. But trust me, it's much better to get the newsletter delivered to your email inbox. Okay, here is the second and final part of my interview with Michael Denning, a professor in the American Studies program and the program in Ethnicity, Race, and Migration at Yale University, who coordinates the Yale Working Group on Globalization and Culture. His books include Noise Uprising, The Audio Politics of a World Musical Revolution, Culture in the Age of Three Worlds, and The Cultural Front, The Laboring of American Culture in the 20th Century. Michael Denning, welcome back to The Dig. It's good to be back. I want to start this interview by taking another pass from a slightly different angle at where we started the first interview with the concept of hegemony. Gramsci was drawing on Lenin's concept of hegemony, which Lenin had used to describe how communists could exercise power in a country where industrial workers were only a very small minority. How did Gramsci remake hegemony into a more general concept to describe how any social group governs or might seek to govern? Putting it another way, how does this theory of hegemony taking off from Lenin allow us to both understand what sort of social forces dominate at present and also what sort of politics might be capable of overthrowing and supplanting them? Well, so let me first, the relation between Gramsci and Lenin is an interesting one. He says two things regarding hegemony about Lenin, which are quite fascinating. One is that Lenin's idea of hegemony was a philosophical as well as a political advance. And secondly, he says that that moment is the moment when Lenin is pushing for the strategy of the united front, 
which Gramsci himself will then hold on to for a number of years. And he sets it against various notions of immediate insurrection, uh, which other members of the Communist International at that point are calling for. And Gramsci already feels, as a result of the defeats after 1919 and 1920, that it is not a moment for either a kind of pure working class base, nor a kind of insurrectionist politics, and that he's already imagining some new form of united front uh, in order to oppose fascism. But also, it is interesting, this idea that this is not just a political strategy, but a philosophical concept. And Gramsci says at various points that the central issue, the kind of the cell of political thought is the question of leaders and the and led of rulers and rule and he says this is not the case of human nature it's not that there always are leaders and led how does one want to develop leaders in a situation where one wants to create a society that is not divided among leaders and led but nonetheless in any politics of the present, he says, there have to be leaders and led. And so the notion of hegemony really emerges out of theorizing how leaders should lead, how parties should lead, how the leaders in a party should lead. And there, there are sort of three stages moving from, as we talked about last time, the economic corporate moment to the hegemonic moment is a move from where one stands together with other people because they share the same economic position or status as yourself and you're all standing together. His example is one tradesman standing next to another tradesman, one businessman standing next to other business people to a kind of notion where a political organization would not be just people standing next to each other according to their self-interest, but would have a wider vision of a new conception of the world, a new society, a new way of organizing things. And for him, that hegemonic moment is when some organized political group led by organizers would actually be able to enunciate such a position and win consent to that position of other allies. And he says sometimes that actually might mean to sacrifice some of one's own self-interest in order to give stuff to your allies in order to build a wider movement. And so in that case, using the example that you used of late czarist Russia and early Soviet Russia, that precisely because the peasant, rural peasant population is so huge that any movement that had been built out of industrial workers and trade unions there would actually have to make concessions to the peasantry in order to win them over, an issue that indeed Gramsci was clearly interested in because Italy, too, was a country with a large south of rural agricultural peasant populations, tenant farmers, day laborers, uh, not even independent peasants as much in southern Italy. 
But that question, I think, remains a question in any kind of politics to now is how, what are the trade-offs that a, that a political organization are willing to make, not with their enemies necessarily. It's not that one's trying to win over your enemies, but in order to build alliances with one's allies. And then Gramsci will always go back and forth between current political examples and past historical examples, and he will go back to past examples in Italian history to show how certain groups had actually been so interested in their own self-interest that they never did actually present a hegemonic strategy and win over allies and were, as a result, unsuccessful, whereas other groups had been able to. And for him, that will be one of the differences, let's say, between trade union strategies and a party strategy, that if a trade union strategy is in some ways always going to be defined by the interests of the members, either in the particular local or the other people who are members of that kind of union, that craft, that a political party has got to bring together not only workers from a whole variety of different kinds of occupations and different sectors of society, but people who are outside the working population, unemployed people in some ways, and that only a kind of hegemonic strategy could be done there. The other word that he'll use a few times is the phrase hegemonic apparatus or apparatuses of hegemony. And that is the sense that actually that what organizers and intellectuals and legislators, those words that he'll use often do, and party militants, is actually create educational, cultural, newspapers. A number of times he'll say things like a, a newspaper can be a party itself. And he says the Times of London in England is a political party. And one might actually think of the New York Times as a kind of political party because it has an educative and organizing and a hegemonic enterprise in doing that. And so that those apparatuses of hegemony are kind of the vehicles and instruments through which this wider conception of the world can be exercised. Gramsci writes, quote, Since all men are political beings, all are also legislators. Every man, inasmuch as he is active, i.e. living, contributes to modifying the social environment in which he develops. Relatedly, he argues that, quote, all men are philosophers. In making this argument that everyone is a legislator, Gramsci is asserting, I think, that power must be analyzed as not specific to the state, but as something that is generalized in all sorts of different ways throughout society, from the state, of course, but also to the workplace, the home, really everywhere. And that seems to me like a major critique of prevailing idea of what politics is. It's not something concentrated amongst a select group of leaders, not something exclusively organized around the state. What are the full implications of what Gramsci is saying here? What does it suggest about how to think about the scope of socialist politics? And then how does it relate to his classic formulation of what he calls organic intellectuals? Yeah. And remember, these are scattered notes. So any attempt to kind of put coherence over them is complicated and is one's own interpretation of 10 years of Gramsci writing and often sometimes contradicting himself 10 years later. Which is okay, 
I'll say. Which is okay. But <laughs> I do think one way of trying to put together Gramsci is to think about those two halves, that sense that everyone is a philosopher and that everyone is a legislator as two halves of his grand project, of his way of thinking about the world. And that the everyone is a philosopher, and he'll say also everyone is an intellectual, comes with the proviso that in a, in the social division of labor, some people have the role of intellectuals. Some people, that's their job. And that other people actually, nonetheless, exercise intellectual thought in their daily life. And he'll have almost exactly the same argument about how everyone is a legislator. There are indeed professional legislators. There are people who are professional politicians, and he does not dismiss that part. But on the other hand, politics is not limited to those people. And in some sense, everyone is a legislator in that other sense. He says the scope of your legislation is different depending who you are. And that if you're in the national legislature for the House of Representatives, you have a very different scope than if you're on the city council. And if you're in the city council, you have a very different scope than if you're on a department meeting. But even I, in a weird way in the department in a university, legislate in a certain sense by setting norms of conduct, setting syllabi, setting curricula, setting exams. Gramsci says, Everyone has certain coercive things. You can give out negative grades or whatever. And in various forms in your day-to-day life and work, you are actually setting norms of conduct and policing those norms of conduct of the people around you. And he actually goes on to say, even if you only follow orders, if you actually only exercise those norms of conduct, you are in that way legislating. If you actually stop at the red light or stop at the stop sign, now you didn't have the same power as the the people who put the stop sign at that junction, but that is part of the legislation of daily life. And that's a very powerful and rich way of thinking about political action, both the differences in power, not suggesting that everyone's got equal power or it's a kind of participatory democracy, but that in some sense, he will say one of his examples, that a father will legislate for their children by setting norms of conduct. He'll then say in the next sentence, of course, that doesn't necessarily mean the children will follow those norms of conduct or whatever. Politics is always a struggle, but that struggle between leaders and led, between the leaders and the subaltern is one of the ways in which this is is structured. He'll say it's often disguised because what is a relation of authority and power is said to be merely a technical one. Oh, so-and-so is a professor is only because they technically are better at this. They're teachers, you're a student, and says that misses the power relations are there to sort of disguise it as simply a technical one. Various structures of authority appear to be someone who's more expert, has more authority, but actually may simply be a way in which somebody can boss someone else where there actually isn't any real difference in skills or knowledge. There There may be a reverse where the person who's doing the work knows more about what's taking place than the person who is supposedly giving the orders. And so it does put 
politics right into the workplace. Gramsci writes, hegemony is born in the factory, which has often been taken a slightly too reductive way. But I think the general sense is that actually leadership is born in the norms of conduct in work places and all kinds of workplaces. And so that politics takes place not only in the official political sphere as in the other. The last thing I would add to that is that is your notion of the organic intellectual, which is a phrase that Gramsci uses, uh, parentheses. In English, we tend to divide a set of words called organic and organism and a set of words, organizer and organization, in a way that one set of words seems to have a kind of rootsy, organic nature to it, a biological nature, and the other a kind of more mechanistic nature. That actually isn't in Italian in the same way, those connotations, so that an organization and an organism are not like two, one mechanical and one biological, but are actually a similar set of words. So So that an organic intellectual, in Gramsci's sense, is not a roots intellectual. It's not somebody who has roots in a particular world. It is someone who organizes in that. One could actually see the organizer intellectual as a synonym. Now, he does. He is very interested in the social groups that one comes out of, and he does suggest often that the organizing intellectuals of the working class are people who come out of working class communities and working class families, but their job is as a, say, an organizer of a trade union or a shop steward or an organizer of a political party. And you can tell that because, in fact, his organizers of the capitalist class are not people who were born into the capitalist class. His examples are advertisers, financiers, managerial people, people who organize the daily work of capitalist businesses are the organic intellectuals of the capitalist class. And I think though Gramsci never uses this phrase, uh, I think one could imagine a kind of notion of organic legislators, which are indeed people who are the organizers in various forms of daily life and work or in, in social movements, rather than extend to everyone the notion of being an organic intellectual, one might imagine a kind of dichotomy or complementarity between organic intellectuals organizing cultural and intellectual and educational life on the one hand and organic legislators if the one is dealing with concepts of the world in his phrase the other is dealing with norms of conduct gramsci also writes quote but innovation cannot come from the mass, at least at the beginning, except through the mediation of an elite for whom the conception implicit in human activity has already become, to a certain degree, a coherent and systematic, ever-present awareness and a precise and decisive will. What does this elucidate about Gramsci's conception of the world-making power inherent in every person, and how, how does that, then, relate to his assertion here that that major ideological transition seemed to require an organized leadership outside of the masses' everyday life. An argument we also hear famously from later revolutionary leaders like Amakar Cabral, and one, I think, that has just always posed a central problem for how to think about organizing left-wing politics. Is, is Gramsci's point 
the classic sort of argument made from Kautsky and Lenin that struggles do not by themselves take on this immediately emancipatory character, but need need some something else, something external to the terms of those struggles to push them into being something revolutionary? I guess I would have two answers. One is, I think, about the specific historic conditions of Gramsci's world and Gramsci's moment in history. Remember that this period from, say, the 1860s to the 1930s, extraordinary migration around the world of people from rural agricultural and peasant worlds into the new industrial factories that are taking off. This is the era of Fordism. In that many ways, Gramsci is a Marxist of the Fordist era. Marx was a Marxist of the pre-Fordist era. We are living in a post-Fordist era. One of the striking things of that moment is the the lack of even what we would think of as kind of modern literacy and numeracy among the large peasant populations that Gramsci is facing. And as a result, I think that the leaders of that generation, particularly one thinks of Lenin's notion of the vanguards, Gramsci's notion of organic intellectuals. I spoke last time of Du Bois's notion of the talented 10th, where again, Du Bois is looking at a, the moment before the great migration of African-Americans from the South to the Northern cities. And I do think that things change in the, a century later, that this is not a kind of eternal thing, that ideas always have to come from the outside. There always have to be elites. Everything that Gramsci indicates in his critique of political science is that elite theories that say the elite will always be with you are totally wrong. He says that again and again. I think he's thinking in a very specific moment where a certain new population has to be educated, has to be brought into political action in kind of ways. And I think of a, a, a parallel figure of someone slightly younger who lived the other side of that, which is the great Trinidadian Marxist C.L.R. James, who writes in the 1940s and 50s about how the ordinary worker of the 1940s and 50s are more advanced in their conception of the world than Hegel and Kant were, precisely because of the change in mass literacy, because of the new kinds of work that people did in the 40s and 50s. And so that's a part where I guess I'm, I think it's harder to directly extend Gramsci's sense. And I think Gramsci is in a world where, for the most part, what we think of mass culture does not yet exist. There is the early bit of film. Uh, there's a little bit of radio. He's very interesting writing about mass serial novels or whatever. But the kind of industries of popular storytelling and popular sharing of experiences that are so fundamental to, say, the post-1940 world 
uh, are really not the world of Gramsci. That's why it's interesting. Gramsci, whenever he's looking at the changing of popular mentalities, he will look at the Catholic Church for his examples and sort of model his new organizer, his new party on saying, wow, look at how successful the Catholic Church has been done. If someone wants a new conception of the world, imagine it this way. And in some sense, there are powerful good things to think of that way, because indeed, religions are not disappearing in that way. And for political people on the left to think about the ways in which religious organizations have created kind of new conceptions of the world and sustained them over generations is really powerful. On the other hand, there is a moment where you feel that Gramsci, unlike Marxists, even of a generation later, is not really aware yet of the difference that film and radio broadcasting and mass culture, mass spectator sports are going to take. How does Gramsci's conception here compare to to Robert Mickles, a leading thinker among the Italian elite theorists. And in this argument that Mickles makes that by its very nature, the hierarchy inherent to organization and the divide, the corresponding divide between leaders and led inherently leads to what he calls the iron law of oligarchy and an inherent tendency within organizations and parties toward forms of top down and even dictatorial rule. Yeah, I think and Nichols ends up starts as a communist, I believe, or a socialist, and so, ends up a fascist. So. <laughs> <laughs> and which is not, you know, is not uncommon for that generation. Starts as a socialist, but I think one might say that Gramsci is aware of two different trends. One extremely pessimistic and the other curiously optimistic. On the one hand is a pessimistic political science that is really being invented at this time, which Mickles is one figure, Pareto is another, Mosca is another. The Italians are actually quite central to the development of this. This will remain an important tradition in political science to this day, which basically, to put it in a very crude way, sees elites as necessary, that democracy is in many ways nothing more than the circulation of elites. You know, to have democratic elections means that we can choose this elite rather than that elite and throw this elite out, and that political parties are necessarily bureaucratic and oligarchic, and that the possibilities of kind of participatory democracy are really just not possible. On the other hand, Gramsci's also facing what one thinks of as a kind of optimistic side of management theory, which is basically from Taylor to Mayo and a number of thinkers from the 19-teens and 20s, and here American thinkers for a lot part, are actually thinking we can develop a management science that can make workers happy with their work and that can actually make the workplace both more efficient in technical ways, as in Taylor's one, but one that would respond to the emotional and psychological needs of workers in one kind of way or another. And if on the one hand, the political science thing has led to a kind of pessimism about popular democracy, the other one leads to a tremendous optimism that the workplace can be humanized. And we still see that in various forms as well. And Gramsci's sense, in a way, is actually for a kind of radical democratic organization theory that wants to be on neither side, neither as pessimistic as the political scientist, thinking that indeed 
one can build parties, build leaders that could get to a world beyond the divide between leaders and led, and that one could also create workplaces that could get beyond having bosses and workers, where the production could be controlled by those people who are doing it. And so there's a kind of radical democratic hope in Gramsci all the way through. And that one reason why he's always fascinated by the forms of utopian thinking in the past And he says, these are never signs of exactly how it could be, but they are signs that in some way there is a vision that there might be another way of behaving, another way of living, rather than the kind of eternal round of leaders and led rulers and ruled. One way maybe to get at this difference between Gramsci and Mikkels is in Gramsci's analysis and theorization of the structure of political parties or as I think you would argue, of political organization more generally. So he identifies three critical segments. First, the mass element. Second, the principal cohesive leadership element. And third, an intermediate element, quote, which articulates the first element with the second and maintains contact between them, not only physically, but also morally and intellectually. Explain these components and particularly how Gramsci saw them cohering through an intermediary, I think we would call it cadre layer. Why is this intermediate layer so critical to organization? Because the intermediate layer is the one that is the most interesting and, and the least clear. And for him, Gramsci, it was indeed the parish priests and the parish nuns. Those were the people who day to day actually were the intermediaries between the popes and the theologians and the bishops and all of that who were doing the the big organizational decisions or whatever, and the the church is faithful. And that indeed, I think what he saw his own party needing to do was to create a huge number of parish priests and nuns to be not the rank and file, but that kind of middle intermediary. He saw it in some ways in the socialist Italian Socialist Party, which from 1900 to 1920 had more or less begun to have some of these. And Gramsci himself was one of those people. He wasn't really out there running for office in those years. He was very active in the Casa del Popolo or the People's House, which was literally a house, a building at which journals were held, night schools took place, party meetings took place, uh, and it was a kind of center for the neighborhood. And he gave lectures there. He was writing and editing newspapers of all of that. And so he saw that as kind of part of that intermediate stratus. Remember the The Italian Communist Party is founded in 1921. Gramsci is imprisoned in 26. There's only about five years when he's a leader of this new party and where he is actually wanting to create precisely this set of intermediaries in the face of fascism. I think Gramsci would be, and one can find it all over the prison notebooks to say, we failed. We were not able to build fast enough these people who could stand between the few leaders like himself who were 
arguing about major party positions. We're going to Moscow. We're talking to other party people in the rest of the world and the rank and file uh, members of the party. So in some sense, from that point of view, Gramsci is trying to imagine a part of his party that doesn't yet exist and that won't exist for the most part under fascism and not and doesn't really come into play until post-World War II, one of the reasons for Gramsci's historical importance in Italy, where Gramsci's ideas about this will be fundamental in the decades after World War II to the building the Italian Communist Party into a major political force, electorally, in cultural institutions, in educational institutions, for at least, what, half a century from 1945 to, say, 1995. Another example you can take is his writings about the pamphlet that was written to train party militants. And he's very interested in precisely having a school because one of the situations he had, and this is a situation even now, any left that is growing all of a sudden is getting a whole set of new people who are joining organizations, joining movements, who don't necessarily have all of the history and knowledge of the previous people. How do you, in the American lingo of this, bring people up to speed? How do you actually train a new generation into uh, what has been learned, what we learned that we did wrong. It's not so much, I think, a sense that something has to come from the outside or that people have to, you know, be moved from a reformist to a revolutionary mode. It's rather that every political organization has a whole sense of experience, both good and bad, experience of victory and experience of defeat. Just this week, the Yale graduate teachers won their uh, recognition election to have a union at Yale. 91% of those voting voted for the union. This is after 30 years of struggling for a union at Yale and 30 years of multiple generations of graduate teachers who have come in, spent a few years, worked hard for that union, passed on, left, and whatever. Watching those organizers try to both pass on the history of what succeeded and what failed and to bring into a, a membership people who had just arrived. Remember, one of the striking things about any union thing is that you don't get to pick your members. Virtually any other voluntary association the other people are in it are because, you know, if you're in a chess club, it's because people like to play chess. If you're in a particular church, it's because they all have the same religion. The people in a workplace are all hired by the employer. You don't get to pick the people who you're working next to. And so that how do you build in any particular workplace solidarities with people who you've nothing in common with other than the same employer happened to hire you? And to have watched the struggles to do this and that that passing on. And so I think that that's that sense of that intermediate is kind of creating that world of people who can bring people into a political movement. Because, and here Gramsci is quite clear, no one is spontaneously going to 
There is no education without educators. There's no organization without organizers. That in some sense, that's one of the natures of being a legislator is that someone else is going to have to be there in part for you. You get into this in your New Left Review essay, quote, Let me underline what is at stake in arguing for Gramsci as a theorist of organizing. The age of the party is over. This seems true not just in the U.S., but in the U.S.ification of other parliamentary election regimes. As a result, young activists think of themselves as organizers of a variety of stripes, not as partisans, party members. If so, Gramsci's theory of the party is a less vital legacy than his theory of organizing— Moreover, his account is richer than the received U.S. ideology of organizing, which tends to bracket ideological issues from pragmatic concerns. How does Gramsci help us think about organizing in this more profoundly political way than specifically the American tradition that has been so heavily influenced by the more anti-political Solinsky, but, but a tradition that's also been shaped, of course, by a century plus of of black and labor freedom struggles. And one that has shaped from day one, you know, in some sense, one of the most powerful of those Alinskyite models is the taking over of the Alinsky model by the farm workers of Cesar Chavez and the building of the boycotts of lettuce and of grapes. So that sentence was not meant as a kind of attack on the American organizing tradition, but rather for us, I think, in the U.S. to recognize how rich the tradition that we have is, that oftentimes it is often put, you know, how come there's no socialist party in American history? One could put it the other way around. Why are there so many powerful left-wing organizing traditions in American history? On the other hand, many of us who went through those different moments probably can remember moments where larger issues of culture, of education, of what the new conception of the world that we are fighting for were bracketed often in the interest of what has to be done tomorrow. And that there is a kind of way in which the pragmatic nature uh, and results-oriented nature of U.S. politics, the fact that indeed pragmatism is in some sense the kind of fundamental U.S. ideology. You know, if one were to say, who is the American Gramsci? It's probably John Dewey. Dewey, the great pragmatist philosopher, also one of the great theorists of progressive education, that Dewey's ideas have become common sense in many ways for left liberal teachers, political people in all sorts of ways who probably don't even realize that they're doing what Dewey had said. And that that notion, that kind of results-oriented, instrumental way of thinking about politics has a lot of power to it, but it misses, I think, what Gramsci reminds us of, that one really has to have a different conception of the world, that there's a long-term changing of not just people's ideas on a particular issue, but that to change someone's mind about, say, their stance on abortion is dependent on 
an entirely different understanding of the world and of life and of the relations between men and women and of situations of sexuality. And, you know, that these are not just kind of, you know, issues in that short way. And that in some senses, those parts of the American left that were hegemonic in that way may have sometimes, if one thinks of the power of the women's movement in quote, consciousness raising of that moment to sort of start from one's own life. That's what Gramsci says. He says, the first thing we have to do is understand the self as this contradictory place and to make an inventory of the traces of that history that is inscribed in our own selves. And in some sense, that was the powerful Gramscian moment, though they rarely cited Gramsci, didn't need to at that moment, of the early women's movement, was one actually had to think about how one's own personal life had been shaped in some ways in order to imagine a world, an emancipated world beyond that. And so somehow how to capture those those two halves, both not to give up the day-to-day political issue, but to realize that that argument about everyone being a legislator, meaning in a fundamental way that the personal is political, that in some ways the personal is one of those terrains where legislation is taking place, is, I think, one of the things that Gramsci powerfully uh, reminds us of. The other thing I think that is why uh, I find myself going back so often to Gramsci, reading Gramsci with younger people, is Gramsci rarely has a sort of condescending, I told you so. His opposition to economistic politics, oh, well, it's because it was in somebody's self-interest, they were making money or whatever, is not that it's wrong. It's that it's just, it's a cheap way of making yourself feel like you know more than the other people do. And Gramsci's prison notebooks particularly are a powerful reflection on what went wrong, why they were defeated, And he says about those three parts of the party that you just mentioned, that the responsibility may be unequal in different cases, but all of them are responsible for the defeat. And he's saying that in the face of a fascist regime coming into power. And we have to think both as leaders of the party, as the intermediaries, and as the uh, members of what we did wrong and how to re-understand that. And so there's a kind of powerful humility about Gramsci's prison notebooks that is, let's say, not there in some of the more celebrated Marxists who are writing, say, after the victory of a revolutionary regime in some kind of place. You know, well, if you just follow the way we've done it, then you too will do this. Gramsci actually is more like the opposite. Don't do what I did because what we did didn't work but actually think seriously about what we tried. Gramsci writes about a successful ideological project, quote, it is evident that this kind of mass creation cannot just happen arbitrarily around any ideology simply because of the formally constructive will of a personality or group which puts it forward solely on the basis of its own fanatical philosophical or religious convictions. Mass adhesion or non-adhesion to an ideology is the real critical test of the rationality and historicity of modes of thinking. 
This seems on some level like a really obvious insight, and yet it's so common still today for people to believe either that that good arguments can win political fights or that just sheer perseverance can win a struggle. And I would argue that this is maybe more common among people on both the left and the center, because the right, arguably, is both more adept at linking economic crises to social politics on the symbolic level, but also also at attaching their ideology to mass institutions like evangelical churches. And I don't think the left has been able to figure this out in the absence of mass union density, although obviously that's why people on the left are so focused on rebuilding union density. And obviously there's not that much of a religious left either. No offense to people on the religious left listening. Are we on the left stuck in this position where we have all these theories of organization, but to sort of butcher Robert Putnam, I guess, bowling the most alone? Gramsci doesn't often write about left and right in that way that we think about. You know, for Gramsci, there are really the dominant classes, the ruling classes, the people who control the economic and political levers of power, and the subaltern. But if one were to translate sub and altern into English, as I sometimes like to do, the under others. And so one of the arguments, he'll say it very straightforwardly in one place. Well, the history of the ruling classes is an easy history because it's essentially the history of the state (laughs) because they control it. The history of the under others is very hard to figure out because it's all over the place, just as the under others are all over the place and that they're not, it's not unified in a state. It's not unified even in a political party very often. And so the question is, how does a whole set of peoples in a society who were defined as under others, not just defined as under others, who live as under others, who are those who are subordinate to other people or those who have precarious employment or are being bossed around all the time, who have to work all the time. How can they actually imagine themselves together, imagine themselves as having a conception of the world that is different than that that is given to them by the universities and the schools and the television studios and the networks and the, and the, the Googles and the Twitters and all of that. So for him, the subaltern is not just a cast of characters. It is a cast of mind. To be subaltern is to be deferential. It is to say, oh, somebody else knows better. Somebody else should lead in that kind of way. I will follow. And for the moment, to turn the subaltern, the under others, into what another term that he uses, the collective worker, is actually in some sense the progress of hegemony. To actually have that moment of dependence and deference turned into a moment of self-assertion, self-legislation, self-constitution is that moment of hegemony. It, It draws on various traditions of the under others. So he'll say again and again, there is a long tradition of fairy tales and utopian dreams and stories that someday it's going to be different. There are long ways of reading 
religious scriptures across the way. He, he has a great example. He says the worker, the Catholic worker who said, well, Jesus says the poor will always be with you. Isn't that against your thing? And the Catholic socialist worker says, for that we will keep one poor worker just so that we don't prove our Savior wrong. <laughs> um, and so he actually sees in a variety of subaltern visions of the world and how it might change possibilities of a new conception of the world. He does think, for the most part, that these contradictory, sometimes incoherent, not necessarily connected views of the world need to be cohered. Conformed is one of the words. For Gramsci, conforming is actually a positive term. It means forming with other people, forming with other ideas. It's related to reformation, reforming, transformation, transforming, and conforming are all in a similar set of, of metaphors that he regularly uses in that kind of way. I think maybe the hanging thread there is in the disorganization of social life, with there still being powerful mass institutions on the right namely evangelical churches, it sometimes feels as though we are attempting to win these arguments either through rhetorical superiority or sheer perseverance when what we need is these institutions. Right. So here's a question about whether there's a limit to Gramsci's moment of history and why I said that the era of the party is over, which is to say the same question of Gramsci's not knowing about an entire industry of entertainment and mass culture. One of the things that Gramsci's generation was able to do was to imagine that a political party could be the focus of people's daily life. And they did. Socialist and communist parties had Sports clubs, hiking clubs, reading clubs, they were the places where there was no insurance for working class people. So indeed, if you wanted to have insurance, even burial insurance or health insurance, the early kind of strike insurance came out of unions and parties, that newspapers and magazines were there, that the Communist Party, even by the 1930s, had artist unions and John Reed clubs for writers, and imagine that there was a whole kind of subculture, a world that one could be part of. And one of the things about the shift from that moment of parties to our moment of parties is it is arguable that no one, including myself or whatever, actually goes to a political party for all of those daily life things, that we have so many institutions in mass culture, and that that's actually affected the churches as well, that just as the churches, whether evangelical or non-evangelical, had a place in people's daily life that has actually receded, and I think they are all aware of that. One of the reasons they've been able to hold on in some ways, one of the things that the left failed to do, those left parties, was to actually create powerful 
life transition moments around birth, around death, around marriages and couplings and things like that. And that as a result, many people return to their churches at those moments in the life course. And that Gramsci, I think, thought that that was necessary, that a real new party would actually have to be a party that would celebrate births and mourn deaths and bring people together, because otherwise you really weren't fully, in his way, a kind of ethical party, a cultural party in that sense. Whether any party will ever do that, or whether the reification of political life into a very special part of the world dominated by professional politicians, professional pundits, professional money raisers who actually just, that's what they do. And the rest of us, it's just like a spectator sport, you know, that the Republicans and the Democrats are like the Yankees and the Red Sox. You're born into rooting for one side. Sometimes your side doesn't look as good as it does at other times, but basically you're not going to switch sides unless something dramatic really happens or whatever. And that your engagement in it is not much, probably less you know, I don't know with me whether the Red Sox or the Democrats. Actually, I've probably cried more over the Red Sox than the Democratic Party. I hate to say that. And it's unclear is in that early day when unions had that position is a moment when the relation between one's workplace and one's neighborhood was often much closer and that people who worked at the same factory lived in the same neighborhood. And sometimes actually their landlords were the same people who owned the factory. And that that's much less the case now. And the separation has been noted by a number of political scientists that people often have a different politics at work where they're often quite militant because they actually want more salary. They want more benefits. They want more control over their work than at home where they actually end up being homeowners, worrying about the property values of their neighborhood, who comes into it or whatever. And since our politics are divided, we vote where we live. We don't vote where we work. Actually, structures, political parties and political campaigns around a certain kind of residential politics, a politics of not in my backyard, a politics of boundaries and borders, rather than a politics of what's taking place at work. But those are the kind of really fundamental questions, I think, that Gramsci's idea of how politics takes place raises for us. Gramsci is above all else concerned with how to make a practical analysis of the historical moment, which involves identifying the status and relations between the economic structures and these broader superstructures. An analysis of the relations of forces at the level of productive forces and also politics and even of armed force. He writes, quote, A common error in historico-political analysis consists in an inability to find the correct relation between what is organic and what is conjunctural. This leads to presenting causes as immediately operative, which in fact only operate indirectly, or to asserting that the immediate causes are the only effective ones. In the first case, there is an excess of economism or doctrinaire pedantry. In the second, an excess of ideologism. In the first case, there is an overestimation of mechanical causes. In the second, an exaggeration of the voluntarist and individual element. 
What's this distinction here that Gramsci's drawing between organic and conjunctural phenomena? Yeah, there's a kind of spatial and a temporal metaphor that is here. On the one hand, Gramsci returns, borrowing it from Marx, to this spatial architectural metaphor where there is a base or a structure, which is the economic foundations, another word like that, over which there is a superstructure, literally something that is above it, and that indeed the lines of determination generally go from that base, that foundation, to the superstructure, not the other way around. And on the other hand, Gramsci has another interesting distinction, which is a temporal one between what he calls organic movements, which are long-term trends, often over decades or a half a century or longer, and conjunctural ones between a particular political campaign. The Biden administration is a conjunctural one, that particular historical moments. And he basically says that the problem in political analysis is not to screw up either one of these relations, that one actually has to figure out what is the relation between those large-scale economic forces, which he says can almost be done mathematically, which you then think, well, how could you do that? But he says in the next paragraph, you can't actually change the number of firms in the country overnight that, you know, we're not going to change the number of airports that there are. There is a whole set of kind of fundamental economic structures that one is dealing with in any kind of political situation. And on the other hand, the superstructural things, the various newspapers, journals, educational television stations, which some of them are actually part of the structure increasingly now that Gramsci didn't really see in some sense. But that other relation, which is, you know, how important is any particular election? Is this just a conjunctural little blip on the landscape? Is this actually a move in a larger organic move that we see that? He basically says there's no way to know that. That's going to take actual political analysis, whether you're right or wrong. And his example is a very interesting one. He says, well, let's take the French Revolution which starts in 1789, and I say it goes all the way to 1871. It's like 90 years old. And then he says, some people break it here, some people break it there. But that's like saying, take take a U.S. example, when did the Civil War end? Are we still in the Civil War? Was the crisis of 2008 an actual marker of a new organic movement, not just a conjuncture, not just a little blip where, okay, there was a recession? Those are the kinds of things. And he says, if you make a mistake as a historian, it doesn't really matter because you've just told the history wrong. Someone else will write it differently. If you make a mistake as a political actor, and for him, and think for him it was, was Mussolini just a passing fan? or did Mussolini mark a new order? Now, in retrospect, we look and say, okay, because of World War II, that kind of fascism was defeated. Mussolini was defeated. Hitler was defeated. Both Italy and Germany were reconstructed as post-war Western democracies in this kind of way afterwards. And that history looks like it's ended. But Gramsci will say, The forces that are defeated in any moment don't just disappear. They continue to be there and they may emerge later on. Now, he's saying that both because he thinks his own forces 
of the Italian communists will emerge later on, but also because he realizes that sometimes all of a sudden things that you thought were gone, versions of European fascism, which for decades everyone said, oh, there'll never be any more fascism in Europe, emerge once again in a kind of new right. And so for Cromsey, that kind of model of organic and conjunctural is built around this notion of trying to understand history as a series of crises and settlements. And the settlement will give rise to a new crisis, and that crisis gives rise to a new settlement. And that those are not determined by the economy straightforwardly. And the question he asks, because it's right after 1929, the stock market crash, the Great Depression. And so he asked the question a number of times, will an economic crisis lead to a political crisis automatically? Which indeed many of the people on the left are saying, yes, now is our time. And Gramsci says, no, 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 that is not the case. Economic crisis will create a new terrain for struggle, but it doesn't automatically mean something else is going to come out of that. And I think that's as true of the present moment as of that moment. Gramsci writes, quote, If the ruling class has lost its consensus, i.e., is no longer leading, but only dominant, exercising coercive force alone, this means precisely that the great masses have become detached from their traditional ideologies and no longer believe what they used to believe previously, etc., the crisis consists precisely in the fact that the old is dying and the new cannot be born. In this interregnum, a great variety of morbid symptoms appear. In, in recent years, of course, people on the left have, I think, repeatedly been returning to this passage and to the concept of interregnum in particular, to, to explore what it means to be living through what, what feels like such an interminable crisis. What does Gramsci mean by the interregnum that characterizes a long crisis, and how does it help us think through the nature and type of crisis that is underway? It's kind of interesting because in that same passage, I believe, that he says, what triggers that crisis? And he says, usually it's when the ruling class, the leaders of the society, have failed in a major undertaking that they've actually asked for and received popular support for. And for him, the big example of that is losing a war. That if you've actually mobilized your population to fight in a war and you lose that war, that loses the legitimacy of that leadership. And as a result, gives tremendous new power for alternatives to emerge. Look at the Portuguese dictatorship, for example. Yeah, and one, one can even go back. The Soviet Revolution in 1917 comes out as the Russian czarist empire are not winning that war. Basically, the Bolsheviks are able to tie themselves to a call for land and bread and peace that after World War II, the most powerful left-wing movements in Europe were in places where the leaderships, whether it was in Greece, in Italy, or in France with Vichy France, had actually made an alliance with fascism and the Nazis and were discredited. In Vietnam, 
after the Japanese Empire is defeated in World War II, it is at that moment that the Viet Minh and Ho Chi Minh are able to build a national liberation front, not only against the Japanese Empire, but the attempt by the French Empire to go back. So that very often, if one were to look, it is out of the defeat of ruling classes in wars. And one might say as well, the other side, that moments when those ruling classes have won have been very difficult for the left to make headway. So that even though there was probably more popular socialist sentiment in the U.S. in the 1940s than at any other time in American history, the government won World War II. (laughs) And they came out of the war with a tremendous sense, not only of dominating the U.S., but a new kind of domination of the world, announcing straightforwardly that an American century was forthcoming. And that made it very difficult for the American left to organize against it. And in many ways, the American left did what they could only do, which was to see as the junior partners of Roosevelt's New Deal, a new deal for the whole world. And actually, the left at that point hoped that they could ride the coattails of Rooseveltian victory. A generation later, I'll just say for myself, for me, the defeat of the U.S. in Vietnam actually was a major crisis of authority. And that that crisis led to, I would say, despite all the stuff about Watergate and da-da-da-da, the reason that Nixon was about to be impeached and had to resign was because of the failure of a major thing that had actually had been demanded of the American people, which was to support the war in Vietnam, to support the U.S. as a policeman of the world in that kind of imperial thing. And the double whammy of the loss of the war in Vietnam and the deep recession of 1973-74, marked by, quote, the oil crisis, was a powerful, delegitimating moment of U.S. leadership. Whether or not since then has there been a similar one? That was one of my questions about 2008. Did that, did that mark a similar crisis? Does COVID? That one I will not, I'll let everyone in who's listening make their own decisions and analysis because of the politics depends on how you analyze that. What's possible depends on how you see those forces. In terms of these levels of crisis, conjunctural, organic, Could there also then be a more profound level of crisis, something more fundamental that might not have been visible to Gramsci in the 1920s, a level at which deepening climate change means that these various crises underway for various durations add up at some point to something like a general crisis of the of the 21st century? Yeah. You know, I do think that Gramsci is probably not the best person to be thinking about the crises of nature, of the metabolic relation between humans and nature, that climate change is one part of, but a whole set of environmental catastrophes and disasters in relations to animals, plants, the biosphere, the atmosphere throughout. In that sense, Gramsci, like many of his generation, comes out of, he is a Fordist Marxist, who uh, comes out of the tremendous utopianism 
of the metal working machinists who he organized coming out of those factories who thought they were rebuilding a new industrial world of plenty and post-poverty in some kind of ways. And there's lots of moments where Gramsci is that kind of a figure and you're not real. Maybe someone could find it, but I don't really see much of the roots for a kind of ecological Gramsci. And secondly, precisely because Gramsci felt that the communists of his generation were abstractly internationalist, that had an idea that their internationalism was so powerful that they thought that indeed you could use the same strategies in every country and build a world working class, an international working class. Gramsci seeing the limits of that, actually wanted to emphasize the national and the popular. Gramsci is one of the great theorists of the specificity of particular situations, of actually having to take into account the very particular natures of Italian history and Sardinian history and Mediterranean history. And as a result, Gramsci, I think, gives short shrift to international crises, that to actually read U.S. crises outside of climate change or outside of the crises that are taking place in China and India and Indonesia, the largest countries in the world, would be really mistaken as well. And there's some ways in which one of the difficulties of the left's tradition was often to take a particular name as a banner to fight under, that one was a Gramscian or a Trotskyist or even a Marxist or whatever. And the richer way to think of it is really that, you know, since the early 19th century, there have been movements of workers in the new kinds of workplaces that emerged out of the industrial revolution and the new factories and offices. There have been movements of women that have essentially revolted against medieval and patriarchal forms of family. There have been movements of enslaved and colonized peoples. And those three sets of movements have in some ways shaped emancipatory politics for the last 200 years. Those movements have had a lot of different political ideologies. In some sense, each of those movements has had some set of them who have thought of themselves as socialists or communists in one way or another. And within that world, there's been a smaller set who've imagined themselves as somehow linked to that tradition of thought that was marked by Marx and Engels. But even then, I would say one should be thinking of Marx and Engels not as Marx and Engels as two people, but as part of that tremendous revolutionary generation of 1848. Marx, after all, is an exact contemporary of Frederick Douglass. And Frederick Douglass is writing his manifestos against slavery and about the revolutions of 1848 at the same time that the young Marx is writing the Communist Manifesto with Engels. And so in some sense, I think the left has to imagine that we inherit a set of debates and contributions toward emancipation a 19th century word, 20th century word is probably liberation. I don't know what the 21st century word is, but is imagining some other world. 
And in that sense, those figures that are part of that tradition, whether it's Marx and Douglas from the generation of 1848, or whether it's Du Bois and Gramsci from the generation of 1919, or the figures of the 1960s, or the figures of 2008 and after, you put in those names that we're, we're in some ways in dialogue with all of them and actually have to keep their work alive at one level, which is something that the more academic side like myself do, but that's only because it can be made to live for people. And as oftentimes in any kind of intellectual tradition, the parents' generation seems exhausted. And by returning to the grandparents' generation, all of a sudden new kinds of things can happen. Now, Gramsci was, oddly enough, probably about the same age as my grandparents. And it did feel for me that going back to Gramsci's formulations often seemed to actually go back to before the common sense that came out of World War II, that came out of the Cold War, that my parents' generation dealt with. But I would never argue that Gramsci is necessarily the most important, the most vital, the best Marxist of the 20th century or whatever, but rather has to be seen in what is a fundamentally rich, varied, diverse, emancipatory discourse that represents both sides, that is attempted to be organic legislators, organic organizers, and organic intellectuals, trying to both understand and change the world. And you argue that we need to desacralize not only Marx within the socialist tradition, but the works of Marx proper, including Capital, which you call a, quote, imaginative work of the socialist tradition, something more like Moby Dick, maybe, than, than the King James Bible. This reminds me of Gramsci when he describes the Russian Revolution as a revolution against Das Kapital. Yeah, because for him, the reading of Das Kapital that he had got from the generation of the turn of the century was the economistic one. That indeed, the laws of capitalism, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall or whatever, was going to lead automatically to the expropriation of the expropriators, that there were certain laws of capitalism that were going to lead to its crisis and to the, a new society. And that was a kind of version of the economic determinism, the automatic guarantee in a certain sense that Gramsci himself wanted to struggle against. On the other hand, the other danger of ideologism, the sense that just if you work hard enough, you know, in the Marxist tradition, Che Guevara is often taken as the great example of this, of kind of forget the material resources, forget whether or not there's enough industry, whether or not the country is rich enough or whatever. We will create a new man and a new woman in Cuba or whatever, a very powerful kind of sense of will. And in many ways, Gramsci is closer to that, but he also sees some of the dangers of that. I'll just go back to my first example, that now after 30 years, 91% of Yale graduate teachers voted for the union. However, that may not be an ideological transformation. The fact is, the situation for young teachers of college and university students is much more precarious now 
than it was 30 years ago. One can't just congratulate oneself and say, wow, after struggling all these years, as I would like to, and, and arguing for it and demonstrating and having rational things that actually that's changed all these people's minds. No, it may be that we're in a very different conjuncture, that higher education looks completely different in 2023 than it did in 1993. And as a result, this is a kind of movement that emerges. So to try to balance that and fall neither into the automatic economism on the one hand or the voluntarist ideologism, as he says it, it's, and there's no guaranteed way out. It's really about a way of trying to think, to be self-critical, to start with always that moment where he says, always imagine that the self is not an individual self with its own kind of consciousness. It is a contradictory consciousness that it bears with it the traces of all history and that you can't even understand yourself until you figure out the history that is embedded in you. And so at the beginning, one has to do an inventory of all of the traces inside the self. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Black Women Writers at Work, edited by Claudia Tate. Long out of print, Black Women Writers at Work remains a vital contribution to Black literature. Through candid interviews with more than a dozen luminaries, including Maya Angelou, Gwendolyn Brooks, Audre Lorde, and Toni Morrison, the book highlights the practices and critical linkages between the work and lived experience of Black women writers whose work laid the foundation for many who have come after. As Angela W. Davis remarks, Black Women Writers at Work serves as a much-needed reminder that the imagination always blazes trails that lead us toward more habitable futures. Black Women Writers at Work, out now from Haymarket Books and available at haymarketbooks.org, where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25 respectively. The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by tons of amazing publications and publishers who put out work that Dig listeners want to read. You've heard advertisements from Verso, Haymarket, Jacobin, Phenomenal World, Polity, University of California Press, N Plus One, and more. If you're a publisher who wants to advertise on The Dig, episodes that reach roughly 50,000 Dig listeners, email digradiopod at gmail.com. If you are an author who wants to see your book advertised here, ask your publisher to get in touch. We could make a lot more money, a lot more, advertising mattresses and web hosting services, but we charge lower rates because we want listeners to hear about stuff that's relevant to them and to our podcast. That's why it's basically books and magazines. Our listeners are smart, left-wing, and they buy and read magazines and books. 
contact us now to advertise. That's digradiopod at gmail.com. Gramsci makes a famous distinction between what he calls the war of maneuver versus the war of position for how to conceptualize socialist strategy. Before we get into the many implications of these concepts, explain what they mean. Let me say two things about them. One is I personally am not the most drawn to Gramsci's military metaphors. I understand why he did. He's writing after World War I, and he draws a whole set of military metaphors, including this one. I'm not sure they are, for me, the richest of his things. The second one is the definition is difficult because even, and I was just looking, there's a very nice little book come out recently called The Dialectic of Maneuver and Position, uh, which really tries to track Gramsci's usages and basically finds that Gramsci, as one might say, contradicts himself. And so at one point, it looks like one is the version and the other and so it's it seems even the person who has done the most work of trying to clarify these as concepts is not fully whatever. And then I found myself drawn recently to a passage where he says there were three kinds of war, war of position, war of maneuver, and underground war. And then he actually goes to give an example, talks about Gandhi's nonviolent struggles in colonial India against the British, and his examples are that the boycott is a kind of war of position, strikes are a kind of war of maneuver, and then the underground war is literally underground in that way, being a colonial situation. And so it's clear, I think, that he's trying to think about different forms of strategy. He does feel another famous version is that he, well, he, he puts two dates on it. One is, 1848, that there's a version of insurrection that he associates with 1848 that he feels has been surpassed by now, that the kind of barricades and street fighting that had took place in 1848 is not exactly the way revolutions will be done in the present. And then he's thinking 1917 and what the Bolsheviks did. And again, he sort of he divides it at one point, war of position in the West and war of maneuver in the East. And he says, well, because civil society wasn't as developed, he's basically thinking czarist Russia as a kind of authoritarian state didn't have all of the kind of parliamentary and democratic institutions that the West had. And so that that's a divide and that that means in the West you might have and there might be a shift from war of maneuver to war of position, and even suggests that Lenin, that that part of that quote you had before about Lenin's theory of hegemony is a shift from a simple war of maneuver or mobility of strikes of, of that to a longer war of position. But again, I'm not sure that it adds up to the most coherent conclusion. For him, the way is trying to think outside of the the models of either purely workplace union model, which he associates a bit with 
Rosa Luxemburg, and he says that her book on the mass strike, about the mass strikes that took place across the Russian Empire in 1905, is kind of the best book on war of maneuver from a working class point of view. Or, but he's dissatisfied with that coming out of his own experience of the mass strikes and factory occupations of 1919 to 1920. Doesn't feel like that's going to be sufficient. But he also finds the kind of parliamentary partyism of the Italian Socialist Party, which he had been part of, and even of the Italian Communist Party, because after all, it was as a leader of the Communist Party that he's elected to the parliament that that doesn't exactly work. So I think in some sense, this, and I think the book by Dan Egan is actually quite good about thinking about them not as a kind of opposition, but as a dialectic moving back and forth between moments of a war of position and moments of a war of maneuver is a more accurate way of thinking about it. Here's a different way to answer that, which has something to do with Gramsci's legacy. Uh, and what's at stake in answering that question. I think that for many of those who were drawn to Gramsci in the 50 years after World War II, and remember the prison notebooks were not read at the time they were written in the 20s and 30s. It's not till the late 40s and early 1950s that the uh, Italian, with the editorship of Gramsci's former comrades, Togliatti in particular, editing for the post-war Italian Communist Party, there's a kind of vision of what will the Italian Communist Party will actually put into a manifesto form, the Italian road to socialism, which is a kind of putting an emphasis on a war of position in that larger sense of staking out a place in Italian society and daily life, in the media, in the newspapers, in the unions, in the museums, in the universities, in a whole set of parts of civil society that were, and that, that the party actually was not just an insurrectionary party looking for a moment of, of, of a war maneuver, nor was it simply one that was conducting strikes in the hopes of a general strike that would bring it down, but one actually had to build a full version of this. And actually to try to build the Communist Party as a party of people's daily life, that it would be a kind of left-wing church. And in many ways, that was successful uh, but in its success was also its failure, that particularly for young Italians of the late 1960s and early 1970s who were attracted to the versions of the new left and to uh, workerism and autonomia in Italy, Gramsci seemed old hat. And it was one of the odd things about the reception of Gramsci is that whereas in the English-speaking world, Gramsci was taken as a way to renovate the old left politics and part of the new left. In Italy, Gramsci was read as part of the old left. And for the most part, the figures of the Italian new left, Antonio Negri is very interesting in an essay called, I think it's called Gramsci and Me or Gramsci and Us, about the distance that they felt from Gramsci. So in some ways, Gramsci means different things in different places. In other parts of the world, Gramsci will be seen all of a sudden as 
in a weird way, being the one European Marxist who thought as a Southerner, who actually looked at the world from the South. And so the subaltern studies group in South Asia and in India see Gramsci as a way to think through some of the specificities of Indian history and the Indian subcontinent. Uh, in Latin America, similarly, particularly in Brazil and Argentina, there are figures who actually see Gramsci as a way to see not a specifically anti-colonial struggle because they are living in post-colonial nation states. They are not colonized at this point in the 20th century, but somehow seem to be dependent in a way on world capitalism in a way that was not unlike the Italian South. And so that in the second half of the century, Gramsci actually speaks to different constituencies in very different ways. And in that sense, I think, but in many of those cases, the Gramsci who seemed to suggest that the days of 1848 and 1917, the war of maneuver, the fast mobile strike against the state, the taking over of the Winter Palace were past, and a new kind of moment of a war of position, fighting positions in all of the different institutions of civil society were the ones to go. It, I'm not exactly sure that one can get that that full reading out of the half a dozen notes that he writes on it. But that's certainly the way in which it was read. In these passages where Gramsci is teasing this out, thinking about how conditions have changed since the storming of the Winter Palace, whether he's arguing that it's an end to the war of maneuver permanently, or whether he's just talking about more subtle changes in, in the conjuncture, he, he writes, quote, in the case of the most advanced states, civil society has become a very complex structure and one which is resistant to the catastrophic incursions of the immediate economic element, crises, depressions, etc. The superstructures of civil society are like the trench systems of modern warfare. And then, quote, in Russia, the state was everything. Civil society was primordial and gelatinous. In the West, there was a proper relation between state and civil society. And when the state trembled, a sturdy structure of civil society was at once revealed. What does this theory of civil society in advanced capitalist democracies, if not heralding the definitive end of the war of maneuver? Because as you argue, there's actually more of a dialectic intention or dynamic between the two. What does it then suggest about the operation of capitalist power and the nature of of the bourgeoisie as a ruling class. Let me say two things in answer to that and think about two particular crises where one could read this in this way. One would be in that the financial crisis of 2008, when all of a sudden some of the largest banks in the world are melting down and going bankrupt or whatever. And there it does seem that very quickly, a remark, huge numbers of amount of money was printed and put into the economy. And all of a sudden, as everyone who wrote about it, I think of Adam Tooze's great book, but there are many others who have written on the sort of day-to-day -day account of how international bankers prevented that from turning into 
the full-fledged depression that earlier panics of 1893 or 1929 had might be an indication precisely of those trenches. Because it's intriguing, though, he's using the military metaphor. Even in that passage that he writes there, it's not that they're challenged by the state. They're challenged by an economic depression. And so the trenches take effect in some sense if there's a kind of economic crisis. And so one could read the tremendous amount of energy to save the world capitalist system in those years after 2008 as examples precisely of those trenches. On the other hand, and I I think I would probably agree with that, and it seems to me all of the accounts of the amount of work that was put together, the the fact that some countries were actually bailing out other countries, that the the sense that somehow this system was too big to fail, and that we're even going to have to support some of the, the weak links in that in order to not see a kind of cascading of falling down of that. On the other hand, one would say, and here I'll take Gramsci's other side, which is Gramsci say the trouble with that kind of economism is that the after the fact history always sounds like it was going to always be the case. So one could say the same thing about January 6th. One could say, well, it was, and it was even when we're watching it on television, it seemed a farcical attempt at a coup in whatever kinds of things. It seemed like the craziest thing. People were just wandering around. <laughs> there were indeed some people who had their weapons and no doubt they were brought by Proud Boys or whatever and wanted to get in. But there were other people who just seemed like, and having been to many demonstrations, like they were there because it was the thing that was happening and they're taking selfies and taking pictures. And it was a The Q shaman was also there. It was a kind of strange combination. And one could say that, indeed, the trench systems of civil society prevented a right wing coup and Trump taking over or whatever. But I think Gramsci would actually caution us having lived with Mussolini, to say lots of things can happen. He says it absolutely directly. The end of that day could have been quite different, that all of a sudden there could have been, you know, I I won't even try to imagine the scenarios, but there are scenarios where indeed there was not the peaceful transfer, transfer of power from Trump to Biden in two weeks. And in fact, that, that, that some of the people who ended up lining up with Biden and finally seeing all of this and trying to marginalize Trump, you know, and then all of a sudden McCarthy goes from one thing to another. You see how volatile it was. And indeed, a few things that had gone differently, and that could have turned into America's march on Rome uh, with Mussolini, at, with Trump as the Mussolini figure. And so there is a sense that Gramsci wants to capture both halves of that. One has to actually think about the power of the trenches of civil society. Because after all, those states, other the banks, other than the Federal Reserve and even the our, our private entities or whatever, those giant insurance companies are private entities. Twitter and all of those things are private entities. They're not state entities or whatever. Nonetheless, end up becoming the trenches that hold the state from falling at different points. On the other hand, Gramsci wanting to say, but on the other hand, states do fall. And we have seen moments when states have fallen and when various forces I remember a line from Perry Anderson once that said, well, the parliamentary road to socialism has not 
been proved that effective very often. But the parliamentary road to fascism has happened several times. Uh, and that sense that actually the, the kind of forms of parliamentary regimes are not like once you're there, you're there forever uh, um, is another of the kind of warnings that I think Gramsci's attention to the, the conjuncture and the, the and which and that's where those questions about whether or not, you know, in retrospect, you have Hitler's pooch a decade before he actually comes to power. It's only in retrospect that one sees the first beer hall pooch as a kind of precursor of the Third Reich, rather than being a, a, a kind of weird, offhand, abstract. And that was going back to that earlier thing about whether a movement is an abstract movement or whether it's really an organic movement. The abstract movements are the ones that have the manifestos. They've got a bunch of people, but it never goes anywhere. It never wins any consent. The organic movements are the parties where much to anyone's expectation, all of a sudden, here one might actually take, indeed, the black liberation movement of the 50s and 60s, the, the women's liberation movement of the 60s and early 70s, as movements that were started by small numbers of people and take off amazingly. You know, it, there's some wonderful letters or they were, I think they were the letters that CLR James is writing in the mid 1950s saying, wow, how shocked he is at this movement being led by this Southern preacher. Now, James had been watching everything in African-American politics for a decade or more and was involved in movements in St. Louis and Detroit, did not expect all of a sudden in Montgomery for this to emerge. And so that sense of kind of the surprise of political movements and of, and of when all of a sudden they take off and when they don't take off. And those remain, you know. Another way to ask that question is, uh, which are the ones that are real gra grassroots movements and which are, what's the phrase? Uh, grass tops. AstroTurf or grass tops or AstroTurf, right, are fake movements. Um, and it's hard to determine that at the beginning uh, of any particular movement, whether it's going to go one way or the other. In terms of thinking about the war of position and maneuver in this more dialectical and dynamic fashion and less as as discrete strategic frameworks historically bounded in a really rigid way, Gramsci's own trajectory really comes to mind, especially these these formative experiences for him in the Biennio Rosso, pardon my lack of Italian uh, pronunciation, uh, the two red years, which lasted from 1919 through 1920, a really revolutionary period that witnessed not just strikes, but but the occupation of factories and direct management of production by workers' council, a sort of industrial Soviet situation in the cities of northern Italy. And Gramsci championed these councils as a basic unit of the coming revolution. Writing in 1919, he said that, quote, the socialist state potentially already exists in the institutions of social life characteristic of the exploited class. Connecting these institutions to each other coordinating them and subordinating them in a hierarchy of competencies and powers, and strongly focusing on them while respecting the necessary autonomy and flexibility means creating, from now, a true and proper workers' democracy, an effective and active counterposition to the bourgeois state. 
And reading through that at, at first glance, the this conception of politics and strategy outlined by Gramsci here with regard to the Biennio Rosso seems different. But but is the notion of workers' democracy rooted in mass organization that that he's analyzing and participating in during the Biennio Rosso, is it so different from the strategy that he explored later in the notebooks? I don't think it's so different. I think there's a way in which it's connected. I think that one of the concepts that runs throughout his work is the idea of the organization of labor, uh, the organization of work in the double sense. On the one hand, the self-organization by workers, as he said there, and on the other hand, the kind of way in which management tries to organize the labor process in a particular factory or work. And I do think that there's a way where Gramsci deeply thinks that out of the forms of cooperation that we develop in working together, there will be ways to overcome the hierarchies of the institutions in which we work together. And I think that goes all the way through through. On the other hand, I think it is clear that Gramsci feels that the early version was too tied to specific kinds of workplaces and what really were, in a way, the most self-conscious, the most militant, the most avant-garde in some kind of ways, workers, well-skilled, often in the new technologies. Remember, the, the machinists, of the fiat factories of 1919 were like the Google workers uh, of the present, whatever. They were the people who'd gotten the job in the most developed industry and had kinds of metalworking technologies that not only did their parents and grandparents not have that didn't exist at the time of their parents and grandparents. And I think that the deeper and that Gramsci, and longer that Gramsci thinks about this, the more he's aware of the unevennesses among the under-others of Italy, and that there are many people, including the people he grew up with in Sardinia, have no conception of that factory in the north and it goes both ways and as a result and as he says and as a result they get recruited into the army that has no compunction in shooting down the strikers because they feel they're a totally different people than they are and i think that gramsci becomes deeper and deeper sense of the disparities among Right, just the penin- the working people of the peninsula, and then the working people across the world in that kind of way. And even now, the world that we live in has the radical juxtaposition that we all daily work with in the U.S. Machines that have been built and crafted by people on the other side of the world who we have no day-to-day contact with and their daily life and not just the and that's just the products the various apple and other products the iPhones the the televisions all of those kinds of things that are coming out of factories that have moved across the world but even the services those call centers that have been offshored have meant that actually we are in intimate connection 
with people around the world because of the things and services we use day to day. And yet we have no particular connection to those people who are working those ones and that to understand how that could be connected, how that collective subalternity, that collective under otherness could be turned into a collective worker a genuine, that international division of labor and international solidarity of labor remains very difficult to see. I think that's the challenge that he's trying to think through and why his early sense that the factory would be, you know, already you can see the socialist state in the day-to-day life of the factory. On the other hand, to give justice to the young Gramsci, That is a simpler, you know, too often that version of socialism has often been called utopian socialism. In the era of the new left, I forget who came up with this phrase originally. It might have been Sheila Robotten, but I don't know. Whoever it was, excuse me for missing a wonderful phrase of prefigurative politics, which was a politics that prefigured the social relations that you wanted to see that one wanted to actually try in one's own organizations, whether they were a refuge house for battered women and battered children, whether it was a collective gay and lesbian bookstore, whether it was a variety of kinds of forms, whether it was new forms of health clinics that the Black Panthers and the Young Lords had put together, that there was a variety of new institutions that weren't just taking a position against it, but we're trying to create new relations between healthcare workers and patients, between students and teachers that would somehow prefigure a more democratic and equitable world. And that that prefigurative politics always had limits. One wasn't able to create a kind of utopia. And Gramsci says that quite straightforwardly. He says that the relation between leaders and led is different in a party that wants to erase the distinction between leaders and led and a party that wants to continue a distinction between leaders and led. And that's why any left, any emancipatory politics is going to have to look different than the politics of the other side, which is basically about inventing new leaders to take over from the old leaders and keep the people who are led in line one way or another. You discuss that remarkable difference between how Gramsci was received on the Italian New Left and and the New Left elsewhere. And I want to specifically ask, what were the various ways in which Gramsci was received by the Anglophone Marxist left at the moment that it was, which I think was in the 1970s when the notebooks were first translated into English. And so many things come to mind, especially a big impact on the circle around the New Left Review, including Perry Anderson's 1976 mega-essay, Antinomies of Antonio Gramsci. Also, of course, very consequentially, the the entirety of Stuart Hall's work, something we'll, we'll be discussing, the two of us in the future. Big collection. There had been a few collections in the 50s, that came out. But the big collection in 1971, Selections from the Prison Notebooks, really puts Gramsci on the thing. And and Gramsci has two different kinds of effects. So first, 
there's several different English language audiences and Anglophone audiences. And so the audiences in the United States, the audiences in Great Britain, the audiences in India, just to take three of those will be quite different, though the selections has big impacts in all three places. One of the differences will be to what degree the communist tradition is really powerful. In places where there were important communist parties, Gramsci becomes a figure for a reformation inside the Communist Party, for people trying to break with the old Stalinist Party and try to invent a new model. And this will be the case both in Italy, among those figures in Britain, a number of them, particularly the figure perhaps uh, around the continent. Eric Hobsbawm will be one of the first figures who brings Gramsci into the British things. Hobsbawm, a great 20th century historian, one of the figures in what was known as the Communist Party Historians Group, had tried in his own way to kind of create a Gramscian culture around the British Communist Party. Uh, E.P. Thompson, though he will break from the Communist Party, nonetheless comes out of that same world. And in some ways, even Stuart Hall, though as far as I know, never a member of the British Communist Party, very close to the journal Marxism Today, which becomes the figure for the reforming of the Communist Party in Britain. And so at one level, that's what Gramsci represents. And in the U.S., that's true, but the U.S. Communist Party is much less important politically on the left uh, and has basically been so destroyed by the Cold War that Gramsci has little impact on that. Uh, there's a little bit among certain Italian-American communists, uh, the, particularly the figure of the historian Eugene Genovese, who will be an important thing. But actually, the renovation of the U.S. Communist Party is done by black activists who emphasize the U.S. Communist Party's important role in black activism. And so a set of figures from Du Bois to Paul Robeson to Angela Davis to various dissident small c black communists like Nelson Peary or Harry Haywood means that in the U.S. case, it is the African-American reformation of American communism that is much more important than the Gramscian one. And so in that case, Gramsci has less importance. But there's another part where the selections come through, and that's the student new left. One of the curious things about the, the selections in English is it puts the sections on intellectuals and education up front. Those are the first parts of the book. And it's very odd because I never teach the book that way because you can't start by trying to understand Gramsci on intellectuals and Gramsci on education. And not until you get 400 pages in to figure out Gramsci's basic arguments about thought and common sense and philosophy. It's kind of weird. But the effect of that was it spoke very powerfully to the student new left in North America and in Britain, because all of a sudden here you had someone who was actually theorizing from a left Marxist position, the very specific position 
of the education system, of the forming of intellectuals, of the creation of organic intellectuals that became really important. And so figures of the, and in that sense, I would say the New Left Review of the 1960s is very much a journal of the student New Left. Uh, indeed, one of their early anthologies that they put out that Anderson and Robin Blackburn put together is, and Alex Coburn, I think, is called Student Power uh, and are very affiliated to the Paris uprisings of students in 1968, the Columbia uprising in New York by students. And so I think there's a way in which Gramsci is read as a kind of figure for a student new left in particularly in Britain and in uh, North America. To, to get a little deeper into one aspect of that last answer, what was Eurocommunism? And how has Gramsci's influence on it been viewed? Because I think it's often been castigated for a certain kind of reformism. Is, is that fair? And why does Gramsci, either way, lend himself to those sorts of interpretations, both from admirers and, and detractors? Yeah, well, how to, you know, boy. This is a big issue, and I must say, I spent a lot of time thinking about it back in the 1970s when the heyday of Eurocommunism. Let's see if I can summarize it for this moment. I think that basically Eurocommunism is the moment in the 60s and 70s when the communist parties are realizing that they have to establish themselves as legitimate actors in a competitive parliamentary system if they want to remain as mass parties rather than tie themselves to the Leninist hope as it was seen at that moment, a Leninist hope of overthrowing the state, that one actually wanted to be elected to state power, not overthrow the state. And as a result, for in the French part, and there's a battle inside all of the parties about whether to stay with the old version or to move to the new version. And Gramsci will be taken as the figure for the move toward a more parliamentary road and actually a more and doing battles in civil society. And that the Italian party will be seen as the one communist party that had moved in that direction earlier than the French party or the other parties in Western Europe. And for the most part, that comes to its climax, uh, which was a tremendously hopeful moment. It's hard not to see this in retrospect in the tremendous victory by François Mitterrand in, I believe, 1981, where putting together, healing the divide between the French socialists and the French communists to put together a united front and winning the election in 1981. And at the time, it was conceivable that Mitterrand's election was as much a, a, a promise of the future as Reagan and Thatcher's elections in Britain and America were. Now, in retrospect, we know that Reagan and Thatcher were the future of the next couple of decades. And the Mitterrand, Euro-communist, Euro-socialist thing fell apart very quickly. In fact, at the time, the American socialist Michael Harrington wrote a wonderful account of basically the capital strike 
international capital pulled their money out, disinvested from France and basically said, you cannot create a French socialism on your own or else we will put France under. And as a result, Mitterrand immediately walked back almost necessarily in order not to crash the French economy. And pretty quickly, Mitterrand ended up looking by the end of his probably two terms in office, looking a lot like the Clinton-Blair type of, of social democracy. But that was, you know, in some ways, it's a kind of ideologism to criticize those social democrats for the failure of their imagination when in fact the situation that they were actually defeated, that it was a kind of compromise, that what that Mitterrand's original hope was actually more a kind of hope of creating, of fulfilling the hopes of 1968 in 1981, rather than being the pallbearer of the hopes of 1968 by the end of that. And so that's why, for me, the the moment of Gramsci's greatest popularity clearly was in the 70s and 80s when the idea of a reform of a socialism that was left of social democracy and a communism that was not the old Stalinist thing could come together. Some people called it Eurosocialism. Some called it Eurocommunism. In Donald Sassoon's great thousand-page history, a hundred years of European socialism, he sees that moment in 1978-79 as the moment of the highest success of European socialism and communism, but also the moment when it then loses very quickly to the forces of neoliberal capital and the new kind of hegemony that Reagan and Thatcher represent. Uh, in the early 80s. More recently, what have theorists of left populism like Ernesto Laclau and Chantal Mouffe drawn from Gramsci? And, and then what sort of politics, most notably but not exclusively Podemos in Spain, what sort of politics did their Gramscianism make for? And, and maybe then how did that compare to the Eurocommunist experience? It depends what you mean by populism. The difficulties that I have with the Laclau and Mouffe uh, versions of taking up Gramsci is that they tied Gramsci's thought with a kind of specifically postmodern attention to the politics of discourse and indeed discourse as politics. And then as a right result, and you see this as early as Laclau's, I think, first book on politics and ideology in Marxist theory, of a sense that populism is a politics that creates an ideological alliance around the people against the power block. And as a result, it can go in a lot of different ways because one can articulate the power block in different ways and one can articulate the people in different ways. But in some sense, their argument, which is a very powerful argument, is that in modern 
societies, and particularly in electoral parliamentary electoral societies, whether or not they are democratic, but they actually have the institution of elections, you can't win elections by being against the people. If you want to win an election, you actually have to say you're on the side of the people. And so as a result, you that a kind of discourse, and it was actually, there's a powerful and really interesting argument by Adam Shaborsky about what happens to a labor party, that indeed, if indeed you are actually announcing that your party is the party of workers and the party, say, of industrial workers at a point where industrial workers are only 20 percent of the population, it's very difficult to hold on to a labor or worker identity and win a majority of the people. And so to actually have a people's identity to be the 99% rather than the 1% is a majoritarian strategy in electoral systems that require majorities. And you can see where some of Gramsci's arguments are are there, that in a way that a popular movement actually has to build a majoritarian strategy in order to bring all of those different sectors. In his day, it was the sectors in the uh, of the peasants, but in our day, it is sectors in service economy, workers in in a variety of different uh, social movements, indeed, that seem to be have to be put together around a rhetoric. Unfortunately, I'll just say, and here I'm slightly beyond Gramsci in this, it does seem to me that this tendency of reading Gramsci falls into that ideologism that Gramsci himself criticized and that misses the fact that these social groups do have our connected to economic foundations in one way or another. And it does seem to me interesting that a more powerful way that, or let's put it this way, if populism simply means all of the parties that claim to speak for the people, then everybody is a populist in modern politics. And it doesn't, and then populism isn't a terribly interesting issue. One might actually see that populism is the forms of politics that have organized themselves around what Marx called at one point the secondary forms of exploitation. If wages were, in his sense, the primary form of exploitation, the various cuts that are taken out of your paycheck, taxes, rent, insurance, interest on loans, are the secondary forms of exploitation. And populist parties have often been parties that have organized around these other forms, tax-cutting parties like the Tea Party themselves, whether on the left or the right, parties around rent, both parties on the left of, of tenants' organizations and rent-strike-type parties, and on the right, Parties about mortgage interest rates or about keeping or keeping up property values by not in my backyard or parties around interest struggles against bankers that put banks at that and put credits again could be the left those tremendous battles over student loans, or it could be the right, anti-Semitic attacks on bankers as a kind of international Jewish conspiracy or whatever. And so it does seem to me, 
real estate is another one. I think one of the reasons why Trump is populist is not just because he speaks about the people, but that Trump has, from the beginning of his career, been tied to the very specific set of, of profits and exploitations around real estate. He is a developer. He is someone who has built his career about the, the weird kind of fictitious capital that development is. The fact that the same building might be valued at billions of dollars one day and at a loss another day, depending on it, is partly because its value actually never is there until it's sold. Otherwise, it's putative. And so I think there's a way in which one, a more powerful way to understand populism than the Laclau Mufa apparently Gramscian vision of the discourse of populism might be to think about the very specific forms of exploitation around debt, rent, interest, taxes, insurance even, that actually create different political subjectivities that often end up looking uh, as populist subjectivities. What about Althusser? Gramsci writes about about vast and powerful superstructures, something we've already discussed a bunch, quote, the democratic bureaucratic system has given rise to a great mass of functions which are not all justified by the social necessities of production, though they are justified by the political necessities of the dominant fundamental group. This is an idea later picked up by by Althusser with his argument about the critical role of what he calls ideological state apparatuses, churches, newspapers, television, schools, whatever, the role that they play in reproducing the relations of production in society. How does Althusser draw on Gramsci, and where does he innovate or contradict? Well, that's interesting. One is, I think he does, let's say, and remember, there's two halves to that Althusser argument, which is that these ideological state apparatuses, which you just mentioned, are also complemented by the repressive state apparatuses, the apparatuses of police and army and prisons, and for Althusser, there's a kind of dialectic. There's two halves of Al- that I think of as Althusser's contribution to this. And one half is clearly Gramscian. And that is the half where he's taking up Gramsci's idea that there are apparatuses of hegemony. And even Gramsci's discussions at various points that some of them are more coercive and some of them are more consensual and is then developing it into this model of repressive state apparatuses and ideological state apparatuses. And like Gramsci, he takes the state as a kind of wide thing that includes a whole bunch of private civil society entities. And so that the the press would be a state apparatus, even though in some countries there is a state broadcasting system and in other countries there are private journalistic corporations. And so in that part, I think Althusser is actually a good example of elements of that new left and the student-associated new left who really used Gramsci to rethink the complexity of the structures of developed capitalist states. The other half of Althusser is really quite un-Gramscian, which is to say ideology not as a set of apparatuses, but as a psychic structure. And here, Althusser, like many of his generation of the new left, drew on the prestige of psychoanalysis 
to kind of have almost a, a and Lacanian psychoanalysis to have an almost kind of psychoanalytic way of understanding that ideology. That ideology isn't just a bunch of beliefs in your head. It's actually the process of constructing subjects that is a kind of deep psychic structure. And that is very powerful and had tremendous influence for decades in a variety of of post-Althusserian forms of thought, even some that gave up on Althusser specifically. But I think that's actually a long way from uh, Gramsci. And there's another moment that Gramsci seems to a 21st century mind untouched pretty much by the Freudian and psychoanalytic uh, rethinking of the complexities of the psyche, that Gramsci's sense of consciousness is still at, is, a, is a kind of, it may be a contradictory consciousness, but it's not one that is compromised by deep libidinal fantasies or anxieties or uh, things. And so I think that's another thing that I, certainly the people who are deeply influenced by attempts to put Marxism and feminism together with psychoanalysis, I think feel Gramsci is lacking, and rightly feel Gramsci is lacking in that way. And Gramsci looks more like a 19th century pre-Freudian figure than a 20th century post-Freudian figure. In recent years, a number of socialist thinkers have picked up where Gramsci left off. And I'm particularly thinking of Gabriel Winant's work on unemergent forms of class co- composition and in what sort of coalitional possibilities they hold out. The old markers of mass heterogeneity, popular heter- heterogeneity, the, the peasantry, for instance, no longer exist in, in the way that they did, particularly in places like the United States. But, but this country now does have a massive and internally diverse professional managerial class, variegated ranks of service workers, varying relationships to, to assets, particularly homeownership amongst working class people. There are so many marks of contradictory differentiation. What resources would Gramsci have for thinking about this motley class, class composition and what sorts of working class coalitions might his thinking help us think through developing? under present conditions. I think he puts us on our own and has us do work like what Gabe has done, which is to actually try to understand the relation of the organic in the case of the next shift, that long shift of Pittsburgh from being a steel town to Pittsburgh being a hospital town, a long kind of organic shift. And at the same time, at various stages in that, the different conjunctural political battles that took place, the way in which that is lived, not just as different kinds of occupations, but as he finds out in his various interviews, even in the shift in the same families, as the next generation takes different kinds of jobs than their parents did, or people who have moved from other places into a city that had been seen as a dying city in the early part of as that book stretches from the 1950s to the present, to a city which is seen now as a kind of growing city uh, in many kinds of ways. 
I think Gramsci is you the two things that he's useful on. One is to actually, and even I have to remind myself of this, I've used this word too often as workers, to remember that one of the usefulnesses of the subaltern, of the under others, is to break up our own reified notions of who counts as workers, who counts as these different jobs. That in some sense, that the first step, he says, in looking at any social movement is to figure out who are the composition of the people who make up this thing and not to assume in advance that you know that composition. Uh, Cause that just figuring out the composition of different social groups and social movements is a crucial one. Where those lines are drawn, you know, one exactly the question between the line between homeowners and renters. Uh, I've seen someone once wrote that the the basic line in the U.S. is between those who can get a credit card and those who can't get a credit card. That kind of credit worthiness is actually in a sense that the credit card becomes a signal of a certain kind of form of exploitation and hierarchy. Um, I'm more invested in a continually renovated left emancipatory analysis that I am in it being called Gramscian. And that I think, I think that anyone trying to do that, and uh, you could ask Gabe for himself of that, but it's unlikely that one will find Gramscian thinking necessarily from people who define themselves as Gramscians. <laughs> but that as one is thinking through the particularities of different struggles. One of the things that Gramsci does say to us again and again is you can't take the characters of the struggle for granted in that kind of ways, that even the social groups are formed in the process of political struggles, and that the parties though it seems as if the Republican Party is the same thing as the party that was founded back in 1860 and that the Democratic Party goes back to Jackson and Jefferson and that Yale University goes back to the 1600s, that none of these corporate names are real, that actually there are organic and conjunctural transformations that would mean that you know, and he says this straightforwardly when he says, very interestingly, there's a tremendous passage where he says, what would it mean to write the history of a political party? And he says, well, you, you know, first, you can't just take that it was always there. And it's not like you could just go to the, the founders of that party. Oh, read Jefferson and Jackson, read Lincoln, and that you would know that or whatever. You would have to figure out what are that, because that would just give you the figures of the ideology of the party. And he's thinking about that for Marxist parties as well. Just reading Marx is not going to give you, just reading Gramsci is. Who are the people who actually identify with that party, who become the mass constituency of that, that reshape that party. If indeed one of those parties that had been the party of communism becomes a party of social democratic liberalism, that isn't just a story of decline. That's a story that has to be understood. Why did those people who actually had to respond to constituents, who had to get elected, why did they make those decisions? I do think that Gramsci probably offers more 
to those who are trying to think through the upheavals of different party systems and political forces than to people like Gabe in the next shift who are thinking in a way as labor historians about the reshaping of working populations in different cities. I, I'm not sure that Gramsci has ever been turned to by labor historians. There may be other people that are going to give you more on labor history than Gramsci. Gramsci, I think, because of his own position as a party activist and leader, pushed those questions of the party and the state more than he pushed the questions of, even though he has some interesting stuff about Fordism, he's not necessarily the person who knew most the forms of technical transformation in the labor process, that still one would be better off looking at Harry Braverman's Great Labor and Monopoly Capital, which still gives us much more about how a society built around banging metal turned into a society of pushing paper, how a world of factories turned into a world of offices. And for us to think about how that world of paper and offices has turned into a different kind of world. Uh, And in some ways, I see uh, Gabe's work almost as kind of the next generation of Braverman's understanding of the transformations of American workplaces and American labor processes than in a Gramscian frame. How should U.S. leftists, as both internationalists and inheritors of a settler slave society, work with Gramsci's insistence that any potential hegemon needs to speak to the national popular Patriotism, for for obvious reasons, has always been fraught for the U.S. left. How does defining who we are, who the we is, help us figure out how to change this country that's in the belly of the, the world systemic beast? The two things I think Gramsci is most useful for Americans is, one, to get out of America. You know, the reason that I still would use the slogan of saying that I'm a Marxist, Raymond Williams famously wrote a great essay called You're a Marxist, Aren't You? And he said that most of the times he didn't think of himself as a Marxist. But when someone accused him, you're a Marxist, aren't you? He then felt, yes, obviously, (laughs) uh, because it meant something (laughs) as a kind of, you know, that someone was drawing that line. And I feel a similar kind of thing that one of the powers of Marxism for people on the U.S. left is it is an international discourse that forces you to learn other languages, other national traditions, other political traditions, and not think that American politics is all that there is to politics. And that's a really important thing for all of us to continually learn. And the other thing is, to, and is kind of a reverse thing, is that Gramsci is very useful because Gramsci is writing in a situation of a country that, if it was ever a major world power, was well into antiquity. And where Gramsci writes most of his thing about a society where there was no hegemonic party. 
And whereas in the U.S., where if we say U.S. hegemony or capitalist hegemony or what Republican hegemony, those seem seem to be like set in stone. Gramsci is very useful in realizing how fragile any hegemonic alliance is. And it makes one have to rethink U.S. history, not as one long hegemonic moment, but wow, is there real breaks? Can one see what happens in that 30 years civil war? that Du Bois talks about in Black Reconstruction that goes from the early 1850s until the late 1870s or even beyond and is not the four years of the Civil War. How does one rethink what the New Deal was? How does one rethink what Reaganism is that those kinds of moments, I think, can be read in a Gramscian way? And in fact, Gramsci's whole sense of trying to see the history of a nation and its parties as a history of crises and settlements is a richer way of understanding U.S. history than the sort of sense that the settlers came, they conquered, and they ruled forever. On the other hand, I think to understand the peculiarities of American experience, and here I mean hemispheric American experience, the weird and tragic clash of European settlers, Native American inhabitants and peoples, and enslaved Africans transported by the millions across, as George Bush said, wow, there were more African Brazilians than there are African Americans to his shock. That there is, I think, something about American exceptionalism, about the settler enslaved and indigenous histories of the Americas that Gramsci hardly grasped, nor should we be, and anyone who's looking to Gramsci to figure that out would be mistaken. There it's clear that Gramsci, as I said last time, that Gramsci's great U.S. counterpart, W.E.B. Du Bois thought about those issues much later, and yet even Du Bois is not that concerned with the indigenous history of the Americas in his re-understanding of that. I think we still have to write those histories uh, in the U.S. and across those U.S. boundaries. I think that the comparisons that do not either assimilate U.S. to Brazilian experience, nor Brazilian to U.S. experience, but think as seriously about the parallels and differences between the Brazilian and the U.S., just to take the case of two large nations on either of the two continents. Uh, Oftentimes, I think one of the problems with the Marxist tradition has been to actually like liberal traditions, see the U.S. as the kind of, as a European extension. And that one would then read all the Europeans and see the U.S. as the the end of that. Gramsci at least would let us think that maybe Brazilian Marxists could help us think about a new American Marxism as well as Gramsci does. Well, Michael Denning, thank you so much. Thank you. I've enjoyed this.
This was the second and final part of my interview with Michael Denning on Antonio Gramsci. Michael Denning is a professor in the American Studies program and the program in Ethnicity, Race, and Migration at Yale University, and coordinates the Yale Working Group on Globalization and Culture. His books include Noise Uprising, The Audio Politics of a World Musical Revolution, Culture in the Age of Three Worlds, and The Cultural Front, The Laboring of American Culture in the 20th Century. He will be back soon for a series of interviews on Stuart Hall. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, upon the different forms of property, upon the social conditions of existence, rises an entire superstructure of distinct and peculiarly formed sentiments, illusions, modes of thought, and views of life. The entire class creates and forms them out of its material foundations and out of the corresponding social relations. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. We are recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Thea Riofrancos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If you're on iTunes, please also rate and review us. So those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling your friends about the podcast. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Music.